I want to speak to you today on the hill country of the soul. In the year 588 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah with his brutal and cruel Chaldean troops. They took Jerusalem and they sacked it. They burned it. They destroyed it. They carried away all of the inhabitants. They carried them some 700 miles across burning deserts and plain country all the way to Babylon and into a brutal period of captivity. Babylon was an enormous city. Its hanging gardens remain as one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was some 75 miles around the city walls. The walls were 200 cubits high. They were wide enough for two chariots with four horses, four horses side by side on each chariot, to drive abreast in chariot races on the top of its wall. It had over a hundred great brass doors. It was a remarkable city. And these Hebrew captives who were brought there to Babylon and subjected to the cruelties of that time and that period had exposure to see what other people who did not know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were like. And they saw that cruelty and their hearts were crushed. During this period of time, they began to pray as they had never prayed before. And God was faithful to his promises, and after a half century of captivity, they began to go back again to Jerusalem. And during this period of time, pilgrims who would make their way to the holiest city in all of the world to a Jew, Jerusalem, composed some little songs for singing. They are designated in your Bibles, in the Psalter, in the book of Psalms, as the songs of degrees or the songs of ascent going up to Jerusalem. They begin with the 120th Psalm. It begins, In my distress I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord. You know, there is one thing about distress. It sometimes does cause us to cry unto the Lord. And so it was with God's people. They cried out unto him in their distress. They prayed unto him. And God used their adversity in their hearts and lives to make them stronger and better people. These are lessons that all of us can learn in life that we need to learn the proper use of adversity, that God is using it in his own divine chemistry for the purpose of making us better people. In 1970, the United States Open Golf Championship was held in Hasseltine, Minnesota, at the National Country Club there, golf club. Sports writers say that it will probably go down as one of the worst national golf championship that was ever held. The reason for that is that it was bitterly cold. There were winds that gusted up to as high as 40 miles an hour, and yet the great contest had to be played. Great golf champions like Billy Casper and 
Jack Nicholas and Gary Player and Arnold Palmer couldn't even break par because the wind was blowing so strong. But there was one man there who seemed to enjoy that bad weather. His name was Tony Jacklin, and he was the winner of the British Open Golf Tournament, and he was born and raised in England and Scotland. And so he was very much at home with the driving wind and the cold weather. And he learned to use that wind instead of being a detriment to him. He played in such a way that he could use the wind to give the ball that he drove a higher loft and a greater distance. And so he was the only one of the players to break par and he won. Now that's an interesting thing. If we use the adversity which life brings to us to cause us to look toward God as happened to these people of God in ancient days, we too can find our souls made stronger. And so we come to the words in that 120th Psalm where this psalmist, this pilgrim, has said, Woe is me that I sojourn in Meshach and that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. That I dwell in the tents of Kedar was an expression of life's bitterness and of hardship and of heartache that would come. And yet the psalmist had learned to take even these things and from them to go to God with them and to receive from God blessing. I don't suppose there has ever been a time in all of human history when so many people in a country have enjoyed so much luxury as we in America know today. We break all records for affluence and prosperity. And yet I doubt if there has ever been a time in our history when our people have been so restless and dissatisfied and ununited and disorganized as we find ourselves in today unless it was the period of the American Civil War. We are ill at ease. We are unsatisfied. And we find that things have not brought to us what we thought they would bring. Where do we look? Well, the pilgrim who would make his pilgrimage toward Jerusalem would say these words, and they're printed wrong in the King James translation. The words say, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. Stop, period. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. Then a question is asked, from whence cometh my help? And the answer comes back, My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. These psalms were meant to be sung antiphonally. There would be groups of pilgrims going toward Jerusalem, and because there would be bandits that would threaten their pilgrimage, and because there would be dangers on the side of the road, religion for them was not just a little adjunct to a gracious way of life. Their relationship to God meant everything to them. Everything. Everything. Their relationship to him stood above everything else. And so their hearts leaped up as they started toward Jerusalem and they looked toward that mountain range. And when they looked there, their hearts were blessed because they thought of the God who had spoken on Mount Sinai. 
They thought of the Ten Commandments by which God had given us rules from which we could live. And their hearts were lifted up. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. And then, from whence cometh my help? And then other pilgrims would chant the answer, My help cometh from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. What a glorious feeling it brought to them, that they belonged to God. I remember the first time that I ever saw Jerusalem. All my life I had wanted to see that city. I had flown across the Sahara Desert and landed in Cairo. Now I remember the next uh, week flying out of Cairo and going to Amman in Jordan and getting off the airplane in Amman and then going on to Jerusalem. And I remember the first look that I had of Jerusalem and the mountains that were there. And even it was hard for me to, to keep back tears. And I remember my heart beating fast. And I remember the excitement that I felt and the chill bumps that came on my arms as I, I actually saw Jerusalem. And I thought about it. And think about the pious Jew who looked toward that holy place and thought of all that God had done there. Now let me say this. All of us need a hill country for our soul. That's one reason that the people who began Montreat founded it. In 1897, in March of that year, a group of people founded this as a conference center for the purpose of spiritual revival and renewal. That was its purpose, to draw closer to Jesus, to feel his presence, to understand his word better. There's many a person who could have told you of sermons that they heard here when Robert E. Spear spoke or J. Wilbur Chapman preached. The Chapman Home Road. One evening a man went back from having heard J. Wilbur Chapman preach and wrote the words to the hymn out of the ivory palaces into the world of world. And words were spoken of our Savior and his love. That's what this place was meant to be a place of spiritual retreat. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. Think about it. Has God ever really spoken to you? And if he has, have you treasured that precious moment and can you look back to it and take increased inspiration from it? And if not, why not? Let me say that there are ways in which we may look that will break us down. If we look in, we can become sick inside. This afternoon at 6 o'clock, I will be speaking in a psychiatric hospital. I will speak to a multitude of, uh, to a group of people in the music room, many of whom are sick because they have looked in too much. They are sick inside their souls, and life has turned bitter for them, and they are depressed and wounded and hurt in spirit. One of my psychiatrist friends, says that he never recommends to his patients to read books on psychology. He said, I don't because they've already looked in too much. They don't need to look in anymore. Now you can gain some useful insights from looking in. 
but don't look there too much. If we don't look in, we may look down. Down in a materialist sense of the word. To think that all that life is made up of is making more money, having better houses, achieving more of the things of this world, being a materialist. And I find that this is frequently true of a great many hypocritical church people. And I find that the young people and the reasons for which they have sought relief by going into the Jesus movement, and I praise God for it, and by going into a renewed emphasis upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and I praise God for it, is that they have seen a crass materialism invade their parents, and they have debased and debauched themselves, and only seeking after the goods of this world. And the young people have become disillusioned with it. And you cannot blame them. You cannot blame them. If we do believe in spiritual values, we've got to look somewhere except down just to the material things of this world. Money talks is what the saying says. And a lot of people listen eagerly to what money has to say. But when it's all said and done, some of the sickest, saddest people that you'll ever run into are the people who have found that way of life and are sick to the teeth of it. Well, where else can we look? We are forced nowadays to look out. We can look out through the television screen all the way to the moon, and we can wonder about the complexities of modern science and what all this scientific knowledge will one day do to the world. We can look all the way to Vietnam and the bloodshed, we can look all the way to Russia and to China and the great problems that exist there. We can look all the way to the streets of Jerusalem. We can look all the way to the airliners that are hijacked. We can look all the way to an assassination in the streets. We can look out. We can look out and we need to because we need to learn what we can do to correct certain situations, but sometimes the enormity of these problems depress us greatly. I think I've been in about four or five commencement things this year, and I wonder how many of the graduates can stand listening to all of the talk about Vietnam and all the talk about pollution and depersonalization and computers and space technology. Then we wonder why the malaise exists across our country. Well, there is another way that we can look, and that is to look up, as the psalmist says. We may look up to God. We may look up to the hills. And when I think of the hills in Scripture, I think not only of the God who spoke to us at Mount Sinai, and who gave us commandments that are great in their scope and reasonable in their application, and which if we followed, we could see wars come to a halt. I think of the mount on which Jesus gave his great sermon on the mount. And with all of our brilliant technology and our great philosophers and our enormous achievements, We've never superseded the Sermon on the Mount. We haven't even come close to living up to it. 
Was there ever an age when so many people felt uninhibited in the expressions of what they did, and yet was there ever a time when so many people were utterly miserable? Their freedoms have not brought to them some newfound joy. Their freedoms have brought to them a newfound hell from which they escape in drugs or suicide or retreat from society completely. But when I lift up the eyes, I not only see the hill of Sinai and the hill where Jesus spoke on that mountain, but I see the hill of Calvary. I see the hill of Calvary, and Calvary covers it all. When I go there, I see the love of God outpoured. I see God speaking to us in terms of love which only the coldest of heart could deny. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. There's the answer. It's in Calvary. It's in Calvary. In the forgiveness of our sins and the great resurrection of our Savior from the dead assuring us of his living presence with us to this very day. God speaks. He speaks to us through the hilltops of life experience. This psalmist says, in that antiphonal movement as they go toward Jerusalem, He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth Israel will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The thought came to me this week that life is made precious because it is watched. Did you know someone is watching this service today? Did you know that we are all being watched by God? That Jesus is here? That the saints and martyrs down through the ages are surrounding us? And we're being watched. These pilgrims, when they pitched their tent for the night and made their camp, would post sentries up on the skyline. And the psalmist, before he would go to sleep, would look up there and see the alert figure of a man against the skyline. And he would know that he was being watched. And because he was being watched, he felt secure and protected. He was being watched. Daddy, watch me, says a little boy. I'm going across the street. Daddy, you watch me, and I'll be all right. He's watched me, and we go across the street. How differently we behave when we know someone is watching us. How differently we behave. God's always watching. The old Negro slaves and the Cotton fields of the South, when they were beaten and brutalized sometimes by a cruel master, used to make those masters tremble in their boots because they would start chanting across the cotton field. An old spiritual. It says, my Lord, hears all you say. My Lord sees all you do. 
And my Lord's a writing all the time. And he's still writing. He's writing all the time. He's watching. And just to know that life is being watched brings to it a great quality. That whether or not I'm in trouble or sorrow or whatever the circumstances may be, he's watching me. Jesus said not even a sparrow falls to the ground, but your heavenly Father's eye is on that sparrow. My favorite of all the presidents was Abraham Lincoln. And his biographer records one night in Abraham Lincoln's life. In the sad days of the American Civil War when Lincoln went to a hospital outside of Washington where many wounded soldiers had been brought. And there was a young man who was dying and he was just a young kid of a boy and he was about to pass away and Mr. Lincoln came by him. And photographs, of course, were not very common then and the boy looked at Mr. Lincoln but did not recognize his face. And the boy pleaded and said, Sir, I'm going to die. Would you write my ma a letter? And Mr. Lincoln said, of course I will. And he sat down and he took a pencil and the boy painfully dictated words to his mother and Mr. Lincoln wrote all the words down. And when the boy had finished the letter, he said to Mr. Lincoln, and would you sign it, sir, so my ma will know who was kind to me? And he signed his name, a. Lincoln. And when the boy picked up the letter and looked at it and saw it was Mr. Lincoln's signature, he said, oh, Mr. President, I didn't know that was you. And Mr. Lincoln said, is there anything else I can do for you? And the boy said, it won't be long now until I'll be gone. Would you sit with me to the end? This was about 9 in the evening. 10 o'clock came. 11 o'clock came. Midnight came. 1 in the morning. 2 in the morning. And at 3 o'clock, the boy's soul made its silent flight into the presence of God. And Abraham Lincoln sat with him through to the end. And it lent a quality to his life. Makes a lot of difference when life is being watched. The psalmist says here that God does not slumber nor sleep, that he's watching. He knows our trials and that he shall preserve our soul from all evil. Not that we will not go through heartache, not that we will be exempt from all hardship, but he will be working out his purposes in all of this and he shall preserve our soul. He concludes by saying, the Lord shall preserve thy going out, going out in the morning, and thy coming in, coming in in the evening, from this time forth, and even forevermore. We all need these hilltop experiences. And that's one reason we have a center here. And our center ought to be faithful to the word of God and to the Christ of Scripture, and to the message which he has brought of salvation. And any of us can know him in saving faith. We can go from this building today 
and we can put our trust in him as our Redeemer and Lord, and our faith in him will not be just a little part of life, but he will be all in all to us. Oh, I must go up to my hilltop again. I have stayed in the valley too long. I must hear again the whispers of peace and the echoes of angel song. Yes, I know that there's work in the valley to do. One must live by the highway of life. One must build his house near the passing throng in a world that is weary with strife. But I must go up to my hilltop again. One can stay in the valley too long. It's so easy to lose the whispers of peace and grow deaf to the angel song. Oh, I must go up to my hilltop again for a grasp of the Spirit's hand if I am to live by the highways of life and to make it God's heavenly land. Let us stand in prayer. Oh God, when we look in, we so often feel depressed. And when we look out, we so often feel distressed. Help us to look up at Jesus and be at rest. Help us to find in him our true peace, our joy, our crown. I could not do without thee. I could not stand alone. I find no strength of purpose or wisdom of my own. But thou, beloved Savior, art all in all to me, and perfect strength in weakness is theirs who lean on thee. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father, and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with all of you, both now and forevermore.